0: With photography and imagery, really what I'm after is to find creative ways to use my talents to help other people.
1: Milo Fowler is a landscape photographer who takes pictures of his homeland, the Navajo Nation. The images he captures are stunning. They feature the rock formations, plants, and skies of the southwestern United States. For Milo, taking pictures goes deeper than creating a piece of art. His photography holds layers of meaning that celebrate and preserve Navajo culture. On top of that, he uses the proceeds from his work to bring light and solar electricity to families who live on Navajo land. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Milo speaks Navajo, and he grew up near the Navajo Nation capital in Arizona. In his early 20s, he worked as a guide, bringing visitors into the Antelope Slot Canyons to photograph unique formations. He's always wanted to show people the beauty of his home. Eventually, Milo got his own camera, and his photography career took off. Since then, Milo's won several prestigious awards in Native American fine art. His dedication to his culture and its preservation are woven into everything he does. Milo Fowler, welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. So tell me about your background. You're Navajo, right?
0: Traditionally in culture, we would say Diné. Diné. Uh, yeah, Dineh. That's how we describe ourselves in our mother language, in our tongue, in our form of communication. Indians, indigenous, Navajo; those were never part of our language ever. We always call each other Diné. So,
1: what does that mean
0: to us? It would mean um, simplified. It would be the people, the people. Like our kids, they're half Navajo, and their mother is you know blonde and blue eyes, and so we'd say Dinétzinande, Bkeyatanda kaigi, the people that come from across the Great Water, Scandinavia. To be more exact, and so every people on Earth, they come from a land. Their roots are from a specific area.
1: Your culture is so cool. Okay, so where geographically did you grow up?
0: I grew up predominantly in Arizona. I was born just uh, a stone's throw from our Navajo Nation capital, Wind Rock, which is what we call Tse and my mother comes from Hoye, which is uh, in English would be steamboat, Arizona. My mother was a single mother for, for, for a bit, and so I was around my maternal grandparents, uh, Shimasan Doshiche. I was around them a lot. I would say I spent the majority of my childhood with my grandparents.
1: How did you learn to speak the language? I mean, it, it's beautiful.
0: You know, being being around my grandparents, especially my grandpa on my mother's side, um, he never spoke English. I mean, he knew a few words. However, he predominantly spoke in our language and my grandmother actually learned English. And so, nonetheless, even though she spoke English and she knew I spoke English, we always spoke in Navajo. And so, it was just really being around the language, um, they would, like, when neighbors or other elders would come to my grandparents' home. They would say something. And then later on, when they would leave, I would say, you know, shema basically grandma, you know, you said this word, what does that mean? And then she would explain what that word means and how to use it. And then I would memorize it internally. And so I wasn't forced to learn the language, didn't go to school to learn language. It was just being around my grandparents.
1: Being raised by grandparents is a really unique, beautiful thing. It sounds like you took so much from them.
0: I view them as sacred people, you know, and now I'm a father and I look back at just my grandmother. I don't think she was even five feet tall, but holy cow, she was so strong, you know, physically, spiritually. And um, I look back at photos, a few rare photos that I have of her and she was just this short little lady, but man, she was the world to me, you know. At some point in my youth, I just remember daily, whenever I saw my grandma, whether if I was going to the cornfield to go feed the pigs or make sure all the pigeons came back, you know, or going into the canyon to make sure the sheep were okay, just wherever and whenever I, I crossed paths with my grandma, I would always say, hello, grandma, I love you.
1: Do you have any stories about your grandma or grandpa that that you remember? Yeah,
0: there's a library of stories, you know. Um, I just remember my grandmother um, had me go out to the fields and I recently went on Google Earth and I measured out. It was twelve acres.
1: That's pretty big. That's
0: huge. Yeah. yeah. Twelve acres of you know, corn, squash, wow. zucchini. Uh, cantaloupe, you know, beans. I mean, we just, we grew everything we ate, you know.
1: Amazing. And,
0: you know, not far from where we live, there's a spring, there's a natural spring that we use to get water for our family and our crops and our livestock. And community members would come and they'd knock on our door and they would ask us, you know, can we have some of your water? And my grandpa always said, you know, this is not our water, you know, he always said, this is our community's water. You know, we appreciate you coming by, so we know you're going back there. And my grandma and my grandpa would see how many water barrels they had. And through that, they would say, oh, they'll probably come back out of the canyon in an hour or 20 minutes, you know. And whenever it came close to that individual or that family coming back out of the canyon with water, you know, minutes prior to that, my grandma would would have me go out into the cornfield and say, hey, go get you." these vegetables, this corn, this watermelon, or this, that, and the other. And then as the families coming this way, my grandma would stop them and say, hey, here's, here's some of our food. And one time I got frustrated. I got mad because, again, think about farming 12 acres, all the, the work that goes into that, you know, the hot days and sweating and sticky and dirty. And, and, and I just asked grandma, you know, why are you giving away all of our food? and she said she sat me down she said which in our language mean in direct english translation would mean you know um you know my child you know in navajo would be like my loved one you know she said you know sit down right here um you know when we look out our door and we see all the fields you know your grandpa has found really good soil good ground for us to never worry if our if our plants will be good this year you know we don't have to worry because the water is so close to us this family that just came here do you know where they live do you know how far they have to come just to get water i said i don't know i don't know i don't know you know she's like well i know them and they could use a little bit of what we have and she said we don't ever have to worry because we have been given plenty Yes, we give some away. However, we can afford to do that. He said, Think about this. Think about this when you get older. You know, and so she always had a giving heart. And whenever anybody came, she if she was there, she, she would always prepare a meal for them. I never once saw my grandma not feed somebody, you know. And um, that was just such a powerful thing that I... That I learned in my youth of, yeah, giving always. No matter how much you have, always give.
1: The lesson to give back carried over into adulthood when Milo worked in the slot canyons of Arizona. You've probably seen pictures of slot canyons. They're remarkable. Over time, water flow has formed the rock into long, narrow corridors. In the dry season, you can hike inside them. The sun streams in and reflects off the sandstone. It almost feels like you're on another planet. You could get lost in this maze of orange, wavy rock. Milo was fascinated by the light in these canyons, and so before he ever even bought a camera, he got a light meter, a device that measures the optimal exposure for a photograph. He used this tool to learn the camera settings he'd need to take the perfect picture. And instead of keeping these lighting lessons a secret, Milo offered his knowledge to the visitors he was guiding. How did you find your way to photography? Did you go to school for photography, or were you just like, I'm just going to figure it out?
0: My first job was being a guide into the slot canyons, which had a tremendous range of light. And so I would just spit out numbers to people. Was like, hey, based on your camera, your lens, and your ISO, I'd you know use this aperture, the shutter speed, and they're like, whoa, that's magic. I was like, it is. It's amazing. And then it came time to get the camera, and then my light meter broke. And I was so used to that specific light meter that they're pretty rare to find because the specific solenoid inside there is no longer made. So then I said, you know, I've taught myself a little bit about light, the math behind it. Um, I'm just going to go photograph now.
1: But wait, you're a guide into the slot canyons. That's a yeah. pretty cool job.
0: It was. It it was amazing. It was very intimidating because people would come with these backpacks full of you know two cameras, bunch of lenses, tripods, and I was like, yeah, you know, um, the light's really good right here, and then it's gonna be awesome for like the next two minutes, and then we're gonna go to this other spot, and we just bounce around, you know, and said, hey, you guys do your thing.
1: Interesting. And so, did you work for like a adventure guide company or? Yeah,
0: yeah. That's that's what it was. It was I basically would you know, give people a little bit of insight to our culture and the land, the area. And then uh, with the photographers, I would just set them up, say, hey, yeah, the light's really awesome here for like 30 seconds. And then there's another section of the canyon that's going to get really cool. And we got to go. And then at the end of those tours, I would say, well, how'd you guys do? They're like, oh my goodness, you know, the canyon was amazing. It's one of the most beautiful places we've ever been. Like, okay, great. Like, What about your photos? What do you think about that? They're like, Oh, it's terrible! I was shaky. It's too dark. You know, I overexposed, underexposed. I was like, "What on earth?" You know. And so then, after that, I I got a little bit of confidence, and I said, "You know, hey, if you guys listen to me, you will probably create better photographs than trying to tackle this on your own. Let me let me help you because I want you to go home with some amazing images about my land, our land." And after that, people were happy. They, they got on TripAdvisor, they would write, and then my tips started to increase. And I was like, I like this. I really like this. People would always say, hey, can Milo be our guide? You know, we'd love to go with Milo based on everybody else's reviews. And, you know, that, that's really where my photography started was inside that slot canyon.
1: I think that's so cool that that's how you got your start. And it's in some ways you were a teacher before you were a photographer yourself. So how did you transition to working as a photographer full time?
0: A couple of days before my birthday, I had this vivid dream that I was was in, and it was all of Monument Valley. You know, I'm a landscape photographer, and I saw Monument Valley. It was clear. You could see every rock and detail, crevice, shadow and light and clouds, and there wasn't a a soul in sight, you know? And I woke up at just a little after two o'clock in the morning. I told my wife there, uh, like, I got to go. I I have to go. So I go up there to this place, camp out, and I overlook the whole entire Monument Valley. It's just one of the most fantastic vistas. And that night, we got snowed on. And in the valley, there's kids that still ride the bus and there's tours that go through there. And, and I didn't see any, like, headlights. And then around, like, uh, you know, about... 7, six thirty, seven 7 o'clock, I made a phone call to my friend. I said, hey, how come there's nobody in the valley? Are you guys not doing any tours today? He's like, no. They shut the entire park down because the roads are all muddy. So they're not letting anybody in for the next day or so. And he said, where are you at? And I said, I'll show you. And so I took that photograph. And usually with the tour vehicles, and what, there's a lot of dust in the air, but there was no dust in sight. Is one of the most clear, specific sunrises that I'd ever seen. And then I was invited to showcase my imagery at the Santa Fe Indian Market, which is like kind of the, the biggest event for Native American fine art. And um, I sold that image for, for quite a bit of money. And, um, and I was like, okay. That, that was really kind of my introduction to like, you know, photography as, as a way to provide for myself and my family.
1: Making a successful career from art can be extremely tough, but when you see Milo's pictures, it's understandable that his work took off. He captures stunning vistas, massive rock formations, mountain ranges, and wide open plains. His images examine light and shadow and how the two interact in our natural world. When we come back, Milo talks about his mindset around photographing Navajo land, passing his culture on to his children, and how he's using photography to bring electricity to hundreds of families. Landscape photographer Milo Fowler is driven by purpose. Just a couple of weeks before our interview, Milo traveled almost seven hours to take pictures of an incredible snowstorm in Arizona. While he was in the area, he offered his help to anyone who might need it.
0: I went on social media and I said, hey, I'm in the area for just a little bit. Is there any grandma or grandpa that needs firewood chopped? Because I I got nothing better to do. And when I went to this, this one gal who lives in Phoenix, she said, yeah, if you can go visit my grandma, it, it would just mean the world to me if you could go chop firewood for her. So I went over to her house. Again, we're not related one bit whatsoever. Total stranger. However, through our clans, I would be her grandson. So it was like, degrees at night and as I'm chopping wood for my grandma I don't know this lady however through who I am my identity as a Navajo man this is my grandma
1: Helping his Navajo family isn't just something Milo does in his free time Representing and preserving his land and his culture is a big focus in his photography What do you love to take photos of? Obviously, you live in like one of the most beautiful, natural places ever. So so tell me what you love to take photos of and what it feels like to take an amazing photo.
0: You know, my, my most favorite subject that I love to photograph is Navajo land. It was a land that we were taken away from at one time, you know, and we're still fighting for different parts of our land. We're still fighting for our resources and to have continue to have stewardship over these lands that we've been around for thousands of years, for a long time. So anytime I get a chance to photograph the, the land back home, I don't need the most amazing clouds. I, I don't need to have everything just be like perfect because the more important thing is understanding what does that land mean? What is that land about? It's our homeland. It's, our, it's a part of our relationship. You know, when we f- refer to the sky or the earth, it's always Father Sky and Mother Earth. Same with the sun and the moon, the animals, the bugs, the things underwater, the walking creatures, the seeds of the plants, the porcupine quills, the hawks, the feathers, even all the way down the microscopic things like corn pollen. We're all related to these things in our culture that's how we view it one family reunion we had was out kind of in the middle of nowhere uh, in an open area and um, my daughter bubblegum she was i think she was like 2 at the time running around playing around just having a blast you know and she started crying like crazy and she was like itching her arm and i looked at her forearm and she she was stung by a bee and I was like, "Oh, where's the meds, you know?" And then I showed my mom and my mom told my older sister, "Hey, go behind this hill and look for this plant. And when you get it, pull it out and then spit in your hands and do this to the plant, and then it's going to create this yellow-green type of a of a juice, and that's what I need." And so my older sister did that, came back and had a little bit of that in her palm, and my mom just, you know, put her finger and her thumbs in there put that around my daughter's forearm where the bee sting was at. And I kid you not, within five minutes, this kid went from screaming her head off to calm. So what do I photograph? Yeah, it may just be a bush to somebody else. It may be a shrub. To me, it's something a lot more. You know, like with photography, you know, there's some places where I go, that, oh man, I wish I could photograph this. However, just the sacred nature of the area, you know, the cameras stay away, whether that be like designs and patterns or songs and landscapes and locations, um, sacred places where we gather herbs for our ceremonies. As epic of a location may be, you know, just the most amazing sunset or sunrise or whatever. You know, for us, what's more important and critical is Maintaining that balance of respecting the land for what it is and to just be immersed in that moment and really in a humbling way say, like, you know what, I am here and I wish I could take a photograph of what I'm seeing here. However, because this land belongs to somebody else, I'm going to respect that and not do so, you know.
1: For Milo, there's much more to photography than capturing a scene. His pictures represent a rich culture, one that he's working hard to preserve. By photographing his native land, Milo is reminded to teach his children the stories, the language, and the traditions of his people. This is especially important because so much of Navajo culture has been lost to genocides and forced assimilation. Just as he was educated by his elders, Milo does his best to instill Navajo values and knowledge in his children. You're passing this to your children by example and by getting them involved. And um, I think that's really important.
0: You know, they're the future, right? Like our daughter, Bubblegum, about three weeks ago in school, in her class, um, there was some kids were making fun of this other girl, Because of her name, they're like, "Oh, you're you're an ugly tree, or you're a silly tree." Her name is juniper, you know. And our daughter knows that we use juniper in our blue corn mush meals, in our blue corn mush food. We use the tree sap in in you know for our bodies to heal ourselves. You know, we use the juniper berries, you know, as ghost beads as a way to protect ourselves, and we use various elements of the entire juniper tree so that it is you know to us it's powerful and i and i shared that lesson with our daughter and i was just so proud of her because you know she she just told those like four or five other kids like you know her name is beautiful her name means strength her name means something different to me than to you and it's not nice to make fun of her just because her name is a is a powerful and a beautiful tree
1: i love that your daughter stepped in so Not only are you teaching her about her heritage, but you're also teaching her to be strong and stand up for people. That's so cool. So I know you've also been involved in some language preservation projects. Talk to me about Finding Nemo. This is really cool.
0: Yeah, well, Finding Nemo started out as our our tribe has been focusing on language preservation with our youth using uh, modern technology and uh, media as well. So several years back, The tribe dubbed one of the original Star Wars into Navajo and um, I auditioned for that and I totally bombed it because like I never grew up talking about lightsabers in our language as a kid. You know, it's just not just not it. And I was kind of like disappointed in myself. However, at that time I committed, like, you know, if something else like this comes up again, I am gonna, you know, focus on this even more and and take it more serious because it could make a great impact. And so then the opportunity came up for Finding Nemo. I got a message on Facebook. And the first question was like, hey, Milo, didn't you live in Huntington Beach for a couple of years? I said, oh, yeah. So they said, hey, we'd love, because of that, you know, and you speak Navajo, we'd love for you to audition and come by. And I did. and, And I just spent the next day there. And then we just all day recording, you know, getting the Navajo words right with the movements of the lips and the you know, it's just so complex. And, yeah, they had the world uh, premiere in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I flew down there for that. It's just a fantastic project because the entire film is in our language for our youth. And then the film was shown in my hometown. We have a single theater, and I was invited to be there. And it was just so beautiful to see grandparents and grandchildren sitting side by side, watching this film in our language. And I just remember one grandma coming up to me afterwards, I'm getting choked up here, but, um, you know, she said, thank you for doing this for my grandson. And And I just told her, I said, I'm also grateful that they are doing this for our children too.
1: Milo's preservation work is having a huge impact in his community. It would be pretty incredible if he was just teaching his own kids the Navajo language and traditions, but he's doing the same for so many Navajo children. Milo shares his language, he shares his art, and he uses his photography to help people living on Navajo land. A few years ago, Milo started working with Goal Zero, a company that designs innovative portable power stations and solar generators. Through this partnership, Milo has been able to help bring electricity to families on the reservation. How and when did you know you could use photos for a cause greater than just these are absolutely beautiful things and it shows my culture and history and heritage and the land? But like you're now using photos to fundraise for bigger causes.
0: Um, you know, the, the, the very first photograph that I sold, it was a six foot print and I sold that for $8,000. Just that one photograph. For me, that was big, you it's know, amazing. going back, yeah you know, 10, 15 years ago. And I continued to pursue that, right? It's like, what image could I create so that I can sell it for quite a bit of money and and hopefully get an award and That was really where my heart was at. And then in uh, 2015, there was a mine spill that happened just right outside of Durango, Colorado. Basically, the dam was breached, and all that nastiness made its way into the Animus River. And then the Animus flows right into the San Juan River. At the time, I just remember being here in Salt Lake City. I was like, you know what? Maybe I can sell some of my images for like five, 10, and 20 bucks. Cause my whole goal was to sell enough images and go run to one of the big box stores here locally in Salt Lake city and buy like a pallet of water, you know, just throw that in the back of my truck, haul that down to a grandma or a grandpa. Maybe I could do that. You know, I set up the website and I took off for a, a photography assignment, you know, three, four days later, I came home and I looked into the account and I just remember f- the first thing I said was like, holy cow holy cow and instead of just buying one pallet of water to put in the back of my truck I bought seven semi trailers of drinking water and at that point I I just remember feeling happier like this was worthwhile like this is what it's about you know and so since then I would Sell my images and then just put a little bit of money aside and work with Goal Zero. I, I would say, hey, look, like this is for this grandma that lives out all the way over here by Shiprock, New Mexico, and she's raising her two grandkids and they've got you know some medical issues and you know th- a little bit of light, a little bit of power could could probably help them. Goal Zero, they would go down like once a year with their staff and then over a weekend find ways to power homes and I would, you know, lead that or coordinate that. And so so now our, our projects really based around powering homes so that kids can recharge like their Chromebooks or cell phones or hotspots and in addition to that have light. The youth are the future. So today we've powered over 500 homes.
1: Thank you for making generosity cool. I just think that your message of taking care of your neighbor and Everybody is our neighbor and we're all connected. It's, it's a beautiful thing.
0: I mean, I've, I've read a few things, some research where for our brains and our body and, and who we are as humans, it's so much easier to quickly focus on the negative. It requires less energy and effort than it is to think about and actually take action to do something that's positive and uplifting for yourself, for your relationships, for your community. What matters is, when I go to bed tonight, did I help somebody? It's amazing what you can do when you're walking your path, you know. You have a reason to wake up every morning, and it's like, today's going to be a beautiful day, you know. In, In Navajo, we have this closing ceremony. May I walk with beauty with things in front of me, with things behind me, below me, above me, and all around me.
1: Milo, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've inspired me to think about the ways that I can give back to the people and to the community around me. Your perspective on community, on traditions, and just on life is really touching, and your photographs are breathtaking. Milo's book of photography will be coming out later this year. The photos will be accompanied by stories from his grandma and grandpa, as well as more Navajo teachings and philosophies. I'm sure it's going to be beautiful. To stay updated on the book's release date, be sure to follow Milo on Instagram at Navajo Milo. That's N-A-V-A-J-O-M-Y-L-O. You can also check out his website to see more of his work and a short film about him made by recent guest Chris Burkhard. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler and Sylvia Thomas of Puddle Creative, and our senior producer is Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. As always, we love it when you follow the show, rate it, and review it wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas.